welcome everyone to another episode of the Poly Hour. This is a very special one because I have a very special guest. It is the Honorable Mayor Tony Harp of New Haven, who served from 2014 until 2020 and has had a, an illustrious political career that spanned over about 30 or so years. Um, and so I'm just very glad to have you on. Welcome, Mayor Tony Harp. Thank you very much. I'm, it's really a pleasure to be here and to see you again, uh, Jackson. Nice to see you as well. Um, so what have you been up to? It's quarantine time, COVID. It's very, very different times we're living in. Definitely uh, different compared to the last time we met in person. So sure. Well, you know, I, my granddaughter's here, so I've been uh, babysitting from time to time. Uh -huh. But uh, what I'm really excited about is I've been working on a project to um, get our churches involved in helping people social distance and um, do the kind of things that need to be done, take the flu shot, uh, wear masks, and uh, do the kinds of things that will keep people in our community safe. So I've been working uh, to develop this project with uh, a number of people, but there are about 20 churches that we're working with. And we're doing uh, video um, messaging as well as paper messaging and really getting the ministers involved. We're also helping to build or build out a health ministry in these churches. Wow, and this seems to be something that's, I mean, Beyond COVID, this is, seems very innovative too, because I haven't really heard anything like this, um, such a large scope of churches um, for a health initiative. So I think this could be a, a really good thing for the community even after COVID um, is gone. Well, I think that's what's most exciting that once we build out and build capacity within these churches, it's great for COVID, but it's also great for a lot of the chronic diseases yeah. that we see in our community uh, from diabetes to heart disease, cancer, obesity, all of these things that, that make it difficult for people to have a, a good life. They can get the kind of help and support in their church. This, this is a wonderful initiative and I really thank you for doing that. Um, and what prompted you, was it the, um, was it COVID-19 itself that prompted you to uh, begin um, this program or was this something that was always on your mind? Well, you know, it was actually someone that I know that I've known since she was a teenager had started something called Our Humanity and she was thinking through it. And she sort of had a lot of the policy uh, ideas and I had the contacts. So we came together and we're uh, trying to get it done. Wow. That is amazing. Um, and so for a little bit of background about yourself, um, if you don't mind letting uh, the listeners know a little bit more about you, um, you know, where you went to school, um, your career path. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I uh, went to college in uh, Chicago at Roosevelt University. Um, and I then started working for an organization towards the end of my college experience, part-time, because I always worked my way through school. Uh, it was an organization called the American Society of Planning Officials. It's now called the American Institute of Planners. And basically what they did was to support 
zoning officials across the country and uh, they put together technical information on behalf of the people that sat on those commissions, as well as um, basically developed conferences and uh, workshops throughout the year for them. And, and that's when I became interested in planning and what would amount to overall environmental design. Uh, at that particular time, they were recruiting minorities to go into the field of planning. It was not something in all honesty, before I worked for them, I'd never really heard of the field. I'd taken some economic classes in college that helped me see how cities grow and, and, and those things that influence them. But I never really thought that much about the commission that makes those decisions. And so I recognized after I, I stayed with them after I graduated, that in order for me to, to move on in that field, I would have to get a master's degree. Uh -huh. And so I met a woman named Thelma Rucker who came to recruit uh, at our organization from Yale School of Architecture. And I applied at that particular time to Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, and to, to Yale. Um, and Yale's response was the quickest. And uh, so I decided I would go to Yale University and get a, a, a master's degree in environmental design. And so that's what got me to New Haven. And um, I, my first job out of, uh, out of uh, my uh, graduate program was with the city of New Haven. And I guess the rest is history, I, just based upon working in the city and seeing how um, the sort of different levels of government impact on uh, decisions that are made, mm -hmm. I decided then that I wanted to be a decision maker. And as soon as I could get people to support me, I ran for Board of Alders in the city of New Haven. And that began my political journey. Wow, okay, because I've always wondered what uh, prompted your decision to go to the Yale School of, of Architecture because when you usually look at the career path in terms of education for politicians, architecture, environmental design is usually not part of it. Um, it's usually like they go to college and they go to law school and then, or they go to graduate school for like, you know, political science or international relations and then they run for office. Um, with few exceptions, like maybe Angela Merkel, uh, a leader of Germany who was a scientist um, before she began her political career. Um, but I've always found that very interesting. And how have you been able to apply what you've learned um, from graduate school to being a political leader? Well, one of the things that I learned about the environment when I was in the built environment, not the physical environment, mm -hmm. is that depending upon the way in which things are built, space is either defensible or it's not defensible. And in cases where it's not defensible, then a lot of bad things can happen to people. Um, you know, it's sort of a magnet for crime. And so, um, this whole idea of defensible space is something 
that I've taken with me over all these years, because it's been a long time, that uh, really made the most sense to me, um, because it also speaks to the way in which a human being interacts with his space and he's either empowered by it or not. And so I, um, so I think that that's one of the most important lessons that I learned and, and particularly that I took with me uh, to the Board of Alders and that resonated uh, with me in terms of policy work that I did for the city and, and ultimately um, for the state. The other thing that, that I learned, I mean, kind of learned it a little bit in undergrad when you sort of look at how cities grow and develop, um, this whole idea, and this sort of came from um, uh, working for the American Society of Planning Officials, but it really became ingrained in me when I looked at the way in which Connecticut was set up, and that is um, exclusionary zoning and how that has, has a generational effect particularly on poor people and the kind of education that uh, can be demanded when you exclude um, people from living throughout uh, an area. And, and, and how that has happened in Connecticut is that in many of our suburban communities, there is um, a one acre zoning requirement for housing. And so that makes it impossible for for you to have um, affordable housing that uh, lower income people can demand. So you're, you're really basically um, restricted to the cities that uh, often, if, if you think of New Haven as an example, uh, because in, in the Northeast and particularly in Connecticut, the cities are geographically small, but they're dense in population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and often um, don't have the um, resources because of, of, of property tax, you're sort of looking at property tax to pay for the services that a dense population would need. And so uh, you basically are, what I learned, and I, actually what I did my thesis on was how home ownership actually creates space that is, is more, uh, defensible, but it also creates uh, an economy for you to build wealth upon, right. which is denied uh, when you live in a, a city that is so dense and there's so little home ownership. So, um, so those are the, those are sort of themes that have, I've thought about throughout my life. That's good to know because this is maybe a bit off topic, but I've always wanted to know like what is because my dream is to live in a city. I feel like I've always, I used to live in New York and then we moved to Connecticut. It was still a very young age, but I still remember a lot of it. And I never really liked um, how there was such a difference in, I guess, action. Um, and I feel like there's just, there's a live, there's a, there's a lot going on in the city. And I feel like I enjoy that action and presence, but in terms of economic freedom, so you would say that owning a house and not an apartment and basically moving to the suburbs, is that a better place to be to build wealth and um, engage in defensive spaces? Well, you know, I think that, you know, it, it, it certainly depends. 
Now, if you live in New Haven and you are a place like New Haven and you own a three family house and you live there, um, you may be economically better off than you would be if you lived in a suburb, um, but then you, you, you would have to deal with a lot of the issues that you wouldn't have to deal with when you live in, in, in a, a suburban area because of the poverty um, and you know the educational differences you would um, you would have to deal with all of those ramifications but economically you would probably be much better off and uh, you could actually almost have a, a building that you owned um, that's paid for by your tenants uh, with a little more to spare so that you could save. But what you'd have to put up with is a school system that isn't as good. You likely have to put up with um, a, a crime that you wouldn't have to put up with in uh, a suburban area. Um, but in 15 years, the value of that property would double. So, you know, you have to look at all of those things. So uh, if you're a young man, you're not married, you don't have a family, you should live in the city and buy a three family house. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the time you do get married, you can refinance it and mm -hmm. uh, buy a big house in the suburbs. Um, but, you know, from a policy, from a public policy point of view, this makes it not be a place, it makes it a place that people invest in the cities because of that, but they don't live there. And so as a result, oftentimes the, the space is not as defensible um, and crime is more rampant than what you would see in the suburbs. Ah, okay. But that it's more fun. <laughs> yes, it is more fun, I'd agree. Um, so now regarding your um, tenure as an alder, would you say that these were years that were formative for you? Is this when you really began to learn like leadership skills, political strategy, um, how to you know delegate tasks, uh, how to deal with backstabbers? Like, what were the years as an elder like? You know, I I was always more interested in policy than I was politics. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> well, it's it's good and bad. You know, there's nothing that's one hundred percent. So um, what I was really interested in are the, the things that I was interested in when I was in grad school. You know, what can we do to make New Haven a better place? But what I didn't understand was the politics. And so interestingly, uh, when I became um, a member of the board of alders, I beat uh, an alder who had been there for many years. Mm. And um, as a result, I had to deal with the interpersonal fallout of that and the fact that I was from a different political team than was the majority political team. So you were an outsider. In, yeah, I was an outsider. And so, but I think I was relatively engaged and wanted to participate. And so they gave me the absolute worst job that they, because, you know, you, you dole out jobs when you're in the, uh, the on a council or you're, you're in the Senate, you know, in the legislative branch, you're over certain, you're either over or participate in certain kind of decision-making. And so they, the president at the time made me the uh, chair of this committee to cite a homeless shelter 
And of course, you know, you've heard of NIMBY, not in my backyard. And so there was no place in the city that wanted that shelter. But I think that I was able to um, work with certain neighborhoods and develop um, a system where the neighbors really felt like they were a part of what would go on in the shelter that they would have some say. And uh, we took this whole idea around the city and we found a neighborhood that as long as they could have that say, that they were willing for it to come in their neighborhood, but they had to be a part of decision-making. And if things went bad, they had to be able to say, you've either got to change or go. And so I think the fact that I was successful in doing that uh, earned me a lot of respect uh, among my colleagues on the Board of Alders. Wow. And, and you would you think that that experience and others um, that came before or followed uh, prepared you to be a state senator more than if you were just were to be someone who uh, dove head first into becoming a state senator? Yeah, I think that the fact that um, you learn that you, you have to work in groups, um, that, uh, that everybody's got to be a winner in some way. Uh, those are the things that you learn early on uh, mm -hmm. on a council that, you know, you can't have certain, at least this is the way that, that I saw it, you can't have losers uh, who are working directly with you, that they've got to have a sense that they have earned as much either uh, gravitas for themselves or something for their community. Everyone um, needs a piece of the pie. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that was one of the things that sort of was in the back of my mind when I went to the Senate. But in all honesty, I got my best advice from uh, a person who had worked in the, in the Senate, actually worked for the Office of Policy and Management that had to deal with the Senate and the House. Mm -hmm. And I was told um, that I needed to be on a policy committee of a policy area that, that I like, and that I need to be on the uh, appropriations committee because nothing gets passed without having money to follow it. Right. And, um, and so of course I didn't know that. I kind of, um, the city's budgeting process was slightly different. So, and I, and I was never really on those committees at the city, but when I had to negotiate with leadership for my position, um, you know, I, I, I worked at a community health care clinic, so I really wanted to do health care policy. But it was right at the time when that was the hottest topic in the General Assembly. And so, um, so when I told them that that's what I wanted, they, they basically told me no. And I said, well, then what I do want is if, because they wanted to put me on the welfare committee and um, you know, because I'm black, I guess. That's what I thought at the time. I said, well, fine. I, said, I said, that's fine as long as I'm on appropriations and the subcommittee that is over the same policy area is the, the chair that I get on appropriations. You've got subcommittee chairs. And so they, they actually didn't want to do that, but because they denied me what I did want, they ultimately gave it to me. And come to find out, so sometimes the Lord is just with you. Um, the biggest healthcare issue is, hand, it's called Medicaid, Medicaid. 
and it's handled in the welfare in the welfare committee. And the other sort of um, private, uh, non-state or federally funded welfare issues, while they are from a policy point of view, are very important. There's no money necessarily that goes behind it, so that the policy that you implement has less of an effect. And so I I didn't know that, but then I I later learned it, and uh, I think some of the the most important policy success that I had in the General Assembly was because I controlled the policy and the money uh, for um, health care uh, that uh, is uh, subsidized by state and federal dollars in our state. And uh, we were able to move it. I just got an award um, uh, a, a month and a half ago from the Chamber of Commerce for the work that, oh. that I did on expanding health care to children in our state. And so, congratulations! Uh, well, thank you, thank you. That was it's really nice. I mean, it happened what ten years ago, or or longer. But, She's so like I about what, time. I, <laughs> I don't exactly know, you know, what, why they did that, but I'm happy and I and I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to do that. But I'm really, I'm really, frankly, very happy that a, the person who understood that system. Um, told me that's what I needed to ask for. And, you know, I, I learned one thing in politics that for people who know more than I do, I listen to them. And so by and That's large, a good lesson in life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I did that and it made all the difference in the world. And, you know, it catapulted me um, to a very prominent position in, um, in the, in the legislature, one in which, you know, like everybody who, who um, wanted to deal in that policy area had to basically negotiate with me. And later it put me in a position to become the Senate chair of the Appropriations Committee and that's everything in the budget. And, um, and, and what I learned there was really very important. The thing about the legislative branch, and I, I would say that this is even true uh, at the local level, at the, at the council or aldermatic level, is it's like getting a master's degree in, in policy because you learn what the cut, cutting edge policy is, you learn who's for it, who's against it, and you learn how to negotiate all of that. And, um, and I, I think the most important work that I did, I think maybe the, the most important work, but there were several other important things that I did in the city. I did um, from a policy point of view, and that was uh, working with the Daniels administration, but I brought it as an alder on community-based policing. But it was that same idea that a community, just like defensible space, you know, the, you enable through that space for people to protect themselves. You enable through the appropriate utilization of the police as a tool, your tool as a community to make yourself safer. And so, um, and so that sort of policy point of view is basically what changed the trajectory of crime in New Haven when Daniels was mayor. Uh, it drifted away during the DiStefano administration, but he came back to it, reduced crime again. And we were even, uh, during 
my administration able to drive it down farther. But every time there's a change and people don't realize that it's the people who keep themselves safe and that the police have to understand that they work on behalf of the people and not themselves. And you know, we understood that right. after many decades uh, of going back and forth in New Haven. We've lost that again, but you know, I'm sure it'll be brought back because yeah. it's the one thing that works. And speaking of that, a big part, because then after that you became mayor of New Haven. Right. Um, and then that your administration was known for investing a lot into the city in terms of creating safe spaces, um, especially for the youth. Um, and that, and in return, crime would go down. Um, and right. so would you like to speak more about that? And Sure, well, you know, like one of the things that the, the city of New Haven did, um, and, and I, I guess I want to say in grad school too, that you've got to look at, you've got to look at the numbers. You've got to understand what is going on um, in your community, you've got to recognize the numbers. Where are the problems? Mm -hmm. You know, and then you've got to have a sense of, of, uh, and so you've got to bring the community involved. But they've got to understand the numbers too. And so, um, and this was going on before I became mayor. There's something called community, um, community. It was basically we called. Um, I, oh gee, I'm now blocking on it, but it was kind of like a, a statistical overview that, of, no 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 use that came as a, a, a about as a result of what was already going on in the city okay. so every thursday and you know they probably still do this to some extent everybody in the community uh from uh the head police officers in certain districts uh the people who run the community management teams um and 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 others that are involved in uh, not-for-profits that are engaged in trying to figure out what is going on with the population would come and they would meet and they go district by district to see what's going on, what kind of crime was going on there. So what my administration did, what we did, we started when I first became mayor, uh, there were a number of um, shootings, but you know, uh, there were at least two um, deaths of teenagers that happened and you know it was clear that the gangs that are, were involved were young people. And so what we decided to do was to have something called community youth set. So you use the same model, you go community by community and you look at the numbers and you bring everybody around the table, you bring education around the table, all the youth serving programs right. and uh, the youth department and you try to figure out, well, who are the kids that are, are the gangbangers? Who are the kids that are coming back from juvenile? How do we engage them? Who are the kids that are um, DF students? Who are the kids that are not coming to school? And then what you do is you wrap services around them and you let them know that you believe in them, that they have a future. You give them skills that they wouldn't have had access to before and uh, we did that and uh, we didn't for every school that we were in that we did that we did not lose um, we didn't lose a kid in our city and we and if we found that a, a kid was in trouble or a family was in trouble we could go and we could help that family and sometimes it meant moving them out of town and so we did whatever it would take to wow. keep them safe and it worked <laughs> 
Uh, that is incredible. And I think, I think this was also, wasn't that recognized by President at the time, Barack Obama at some point? Sure, yes, because you know, like it really dovetailed and worked with uh, my brother's keeper program, which was which yeah. he started nationally. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. So another thing, interesting thing about you is that you were the first woman to ever serve as mayor of New Haven, but you're also a black woman as well. So I could probably predict that you faced adversity that was a bit like a two-edged sword. You received it maybe because you were black and then also because you're a woman. Has that happened and how did you deal with it? What was that like? Well, you know, I remember when I first ran for senator, I was running against two men. And I remember standing out in front of a school, Lincoln Bassett, mm -hmm. and um, there were these, these men, they were black men on a bullhorn screaming to everybody who was coming to vote, you don't want to vote for a woman. You don't want a woman to represent us. A woman is not strong enough. You you said that? <laughs> yes, they did. On a bullhorn. And so and this um, is in 2014 through 2013. No, no, this isn't when I ran for mayor. No, oh, this oh, is okay. when, no, 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 no. This was this was when I ran um, um, for um, for state senator. Okay, but still, that's not a long time ago. That's wow. No, no, it's not, it wasn't that long ago. And you know, in all honesty, even um, though no one said anything when I was mayor, a lot of times, particularly the men who were leaders in my administration, now they would come to me, but they would first go to my chief of staff, who was a man, oh. and they would try to make their deal with him so he could come and make the deal with me so there was no <laughs> so i still had to deal with that maybe they were scared <laughs> of you <laughs> maybe <laughs> okay but you i mean despite all of that you are a trailblazer and i think you opened a lot of doors for people um in new haven um especially for people like my little sister um and i'm glad to have you on as a guest on the Poly Hour. This is a huge honor. Um, and I thank you for coming on for this short little time to, to speak with me and to let everyone know about you because I think that you are a figure that um, whose story should be known. Because also you, you do, there is a story, I don't know if you are comfortable talking about this, but I remember when you had a debate at Yale and you gave a story about your upbringing. Um, and I think there was a medical Thing that you have and that was sort of like a turning point um sure yeah i was when i was a little girl and this will give you uh some indication of how old i i i am and it's kind of why uh even this time is really resonates with me this time of the pandemic but um i contracted polio mm. and uh i had to learn to walk all over again and um so I think that that was defining in many respects of just uh, having to deal with, with that adversity and having to deal with the iron lung, uh, my mother not being able to stay long uh, in the hospital with me and all of that, and then recovering fully. I mean, it was a blessing, but um, I know how critically important uh, having a good healthcare delivery system is and having resources. Uh, to get good health care. 
And, you know, and frankly, you know, there are a lot of anti-vaxxers, uh, you know, people who don't believe in vaccines, but I also know what it's like to get one of those diseases that we no longer have to deal with in this world, literally, because of a vaccine. Yeah. And so it makes me feel very, very, um, it, it makes me feel like I have to advocate on behalf of that. So many people have never had to face those diseases and there's a reason for that. And so, um, so it has defined me in many respects. And with the new administration coming in, um, I, A, I'm sure you're happy about the turnout <laughs> of the election. Um, and do you have high hopes about healthcare? Because healthcare was a very big, I mean, it was probably the biggest topic until COVID-19 came around um, during the 2020 election. Um, and do you have high hopes that we'll have some sort of a breakthrough for a national system of healthcare? That's well, you know, I'm really hoping that we find a way to make sure that everyone has access. The other thing that um, that I learned, and this was um, in terms of the way that I looked at it, was when I was in the Senate. Um, there was a there was a we learned of this this man um, who came to New York on um, on the train on Metro North, and um, he used. When he got off the train, he used the telephone, um, started coughing and carrying on. Um, and then I think he actually tried to rob someone, was arrested by the police. Um, and he was sent to county jail over on Whaley Avenue in New Haven and um, got really, really, really sick. And then he was sent by uh, an ambulance to the hospital. Mm. Um, they stayed in the hospital, they didn't know what was wrong with him and they tried a lot of things. And they finally, after a day or two, discovered that he had multi-drug resistant TB. Now you think about what that means and where that person has gone. First of all, you don't know whose life he touched in New York, where he came from. And then all of the people that he interacted with physically uh, in the train station, on the train, then he made his call then he tried to, to, to um, steal food or whatever uh, from a store and then the police. And then finally the people in, the, in our, in our uh, jail system. And then even the people in the hospital, all of those people needed to be contact traced. It was almost impossible to do it. But what it taught me was didn't matter who you were, if you came in contact with this guy, you were vulnerable because you're a human being. And that shows that we are all interconnected. And it was a long story for us to say, but we're, all, <laughs> we're all interconnected, that we should all be respected and that we should take care of one another and make sure that we have a healthcare delivery system that will care for us all. Because if we don't, we're all vulnerable. Well, I could not agree more. I'm with you 100%. Um, <laughs> everyone, that was Mayor Tony Harp of uh, New Haven, who uh, served from 2014 to 2020. Um, the last question I have for you is, what is on the horizon for you? You're uh, no longer mayor, so you are the grandmother-in-chief right now. But I am, and my son is is demanding that I write a book, so... That might be the next thing. 
I was thinking about that the other day. I was, I was, I literally thought that the other day. I was like, she should write a book for yeah. sure. You should definitely write a book. Do you All right. Well, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. I'll proofread it for you. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. You take care. Have a wonderful holiday. You as well. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wait, wait, wait. Don't go just yet. Whatever platform that you are listening to the Poly Hour on, whatever it tells you to do to support a podcast like mine, like, comment, subscribe, follow, love, please do it. It really helps me a lot. Um, you can even donate to the Poly Hour through different platforms, especially like uh, Anchor, uh, which allows me to edit videos and upload to multiple platforms. So please do so. It really helps a lot. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. Mayor Tony Harp is a fantastic woman. Um, and stay tuned for the next episode. It's going to be a good one. Thank you. Thank you.